Good morning, City Light. Uh, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm so glad to be in the room with you guys. I don't know about you, but I am always excited to come here. Some mornings I wake up not excited, but I get there eventually, and I'm like, man, look at these people who are my family, who I love and care about, and so it is good to be here. I see that some of our college students are back from spring break, so that's a good thing. If you are back from spring break, I want to say welcome back. We love you. We care about you. We've missed you, and so thanks for joining us this morning. Um, So we're still actually going to continue through the book of John today. Uh, So I'll have you open your Bible. Go ahead and open up now to chapter 8. And we're picking it up actually in verse 12. Uh, But before we jump in, I do have a question. I just want to do a quick survey. How many of you as kids were afraid of the dark? Raise your hand. How many of you, keep your hands up. Go ahead and keep it up. It's all right. It's all right. How many of you are still afraid of the dark? Now, don't lie. We in church now. Don't lie. Some of y'all still have your hands up. That's okay. Uh, but I remember as a kid, I was also afraid of the dark. Uh, I was afraid of going into dark places because you can't see anything. And I remember this one time. See, I was kind of a weird kid. I loved scary movies. I wanted to be scared. And so I would sit and watch scary movies. And I remember one night, specifically, I was sitting watching a scary movie. And my mom comes over and says, hey, when your movie's over, will you go and take out the trash? And I was like, sure, no problem. So I watch the rest of my scary movie, and then I go and I bag up the trash and I tie it up, and then I open up the door, and all that I see is complete darkness. Now, mind you, I'm coming off a movie where scary things happen when it's dark out. So that's not exactly the most welcoming or inviting environment. And so there was no, the, the, the moon was not shining bright enough, the street lights were not shining bright enough, so everything was kind of disfigured, discolored, and I couldn't see very well. And so I I walked through the door, went down the steps, walked through the yard. The garbage can was actually in the alley, so I had a ways to go. And so I, I creep out and just kind of make a swallow, like gulp in, keep walking, walking, and then I lift up the dumpster lid, and then I drop the bag in there, I run as far as I can, right back in through the door, close the door and lock it, right? Like, just shaking, like, oh my goodness, that was close, something almost got me, I know it, right? Like, like just shaking, scared, so fearful, because I couldn't see what was out there, and then we, we eventually moved, and, and when we moved, we had a porch light. So that was helpful, made my childhood a little bit more comforting because no longer was, did I have imaginations of the things that were out there. I could actually see what was out there, which was nothing. Um, and so as we look at Jesus and his encounter, he's encountering people. He's speaking to people who walk in spiritual darkness. Uh, so he's talking to people who are fearful and more metaphorically speaking, running away in the dark. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he wants to be their proverbial porch light for them, turn that on and, and make it so they can walk into the light. You remember when we early on in chapter 1 of John, uh, John 1, 5, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What, what it's saying is that when the light comes on, the darkness scatters away from it. And so Jesus comes in to shine a light on their false views of God in their hearts. He wants to take what they think God is and who they think he is and flip it on its head. 
And so this morning, I, I know there's some areas of our lives as well, whether how we view God or view life, that has some dark places in there. And so my prayer is that God would shine a light in those places uh, this morning. So we're coming off the book, the chapter 7 in the book of John. And what happens is Jesus stands up in the crowd of people and gives an argument as to why he has the authority to um, say that he is the Son of God. But then also he tells them what gives him the right to heal somebody on the Sabbath and how he could call himself the bread of life. And so now he is again, as Jesus tends to do, is standing in a crowd of hostile people, the Pharisees. And in verse 12, as he's standing there, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, after this, the people were really offended. Like, at least it seems like they were offended because when you look at verse 13, right after that, it says, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Ultimately, what they're saying here is, Jesus, you lying. Now, when I look at that, I imagine myself in that situation. So just picture it for a second. I'm sitting here. I'm preaching hard. I'm, I'm outlining the text. I'm going, just, just preaching it, right? And some dude stands up in the middle of the room and says, hey, dude, you're a liar. Well, I promise you, my dude Austin is going to come and drop kick that dude and drag him right up out of here. <laughs> Not going to happen in this room, but Jesus approaches this a little bit different. I'm a little aggressive. Jesus, not so much. So in their outrage, they're saying they're outraged by Jesus' statement of the fact that he is the light of the world, that he is the I am. And so as he's shining the light into their dark hearts, we want to unpack the gravity of that statement. We want to take the statement in, in verse 12 and unpack it. Now, it's, it's pretty dense, but we're going to walk through the who, the what, the where, and the how of Jesus' statement here in verse 12. And so my first point is... The who? The who. And it says, I am. The very first two words in there is, I am. And the Pharisees, when they hear that, when they hear Jesus say that I, I am, they immediately go back to the scriptures that they know very well and know that in him just saying the words, I am, he's calling himself, or at least putting himself equal with God. Because they know that that's the name that God told Moses in the burning bush, who he was. And so this is, I mean, all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, Jesus, what are you doing here? Like, that's not how we view God, actually. We don't view God like you because you're a humble servant. We're expecting a conquering king. When he said Messiah, we're thinking, hey, we're going to take over the world. And you're coming in telling us you're the light of the world and you're a humble servant. And so he's taking their concept of God and turning it around. And so, of course, they're a little upset at this point. And so when Jesus says, I am, it's in reference to Exodus 3, uh, verses 13 and 14. And here's what he says. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Man, what a cool statement, right? And then he goes on to say, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you has sent me to you. And they had decided on what they had thought God would be like and who he is. And Jesus is saying, no, 
I am the God who spoke to Moses in the desert. The God who is pre-existent. He said, that's me. The guy who said, I am then is the same guy that's saying, I am now. And he doesn't always fit the mold that we see him in either, does he? Like we have our own imagination or preconceived ideas of what God would do or what he definitely would not do or what he would be like or what he definitely would not be like. And what Jesus is actually saying here is saying, don't be deceived. I am the self-existent God. I'm defined by me. He's self-determined. He is not defined by any human imagination, but by himself and through himself can he be Define. And so Jesus is saying, I am who I have always been, I have always been and always will be, and I never change. Now, City Light, that should be a comfort to us. That in and of itself, that Jesus never changes ought to be a comfort to us because as you know, as you look at your life right now, look at everything that's going on, life is continually in some sort of flux. There's always an ebb and a flow and a, and a, a good and a bad and something always going on. And Jesus says, no, I'm right here all the time. I'm steady. I'm consistent. So, so when things get difficult, when life is not consistent, Jesus says, hey, I'm right here. I haven't moved on. So when, you're, when you lose your job, Jesus says, I'm not changing. When you have a baby and it's a beautiful, good news, Jesus says, I'm not changing. I am who I am. And, and when you don't hold up to God's standard, he says, I am who I am and I still love you in the midst of it. How beautiful is our God that he is never changing while we see and experience waves of life, loved ones coming and going, life getting hard and getting good, Jesus is the most consistent and steady love our life, in our life and is never out of control. Who is Jesus? He is the I am. He's the preexistent God who never changes. So that gets me to my second point, um, which is the third word in our sentence here. No, actually it's the fifth. But anyway, no, wait. Fourth. Anyway, uh, my second point is the what? Jesus is, what does he say? I am the light. And so we're going to look at the light. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light. And so they knew again what he was talking about. Remember, so the Pharisees, these guys were the religious leaders of their day. They were like big time pastors. They're better than me because they had their scripture memorized. And so when he would make references like this, they'd be like, oh, I know what you're talking about. And in this circumstance, they're like, wait a minute, that's Genesis 1. When Jesus, when God comes in and says, let there be light, and Jesus is saying, yep, that was me. I am the power, the force by which God created the heavens and the earth. I am the power by which God used and enforced life in this world. Well, that, they don't like that either, right? For Jesus to stand up as a man, God's son, and say that I am the light was to say, hey, I am the Main, man's source of true life, and the only way they could see God the Father is through me. Like, that's offensive to those guys. They're, he's taking what they thought to be God and flipping it on its head. And so when we walk in darkness, though, just like these guys are, we can't actually see things, right? Like, we can't see things at least clearly. You might be able to see them dimly, but you can't see them clearly. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the light to make you see clearly. So when you're walking in the darkness and you don't know where you're going, you have no idea if you're even going in the right direction in the first place. 
So you need light. And so he's saying, hey, I'm that. I want to make you walk into the light safely, walk around in safety. And so outside of a relationship with Jesus, we are in spiritual darkness. We're lost without cause, without purpose, without life. So it's not saying here that if you walk in darkness, things are just harder. That's not at all what it's saying, actually. What it's saying is if you're in darkness, not in the light, then you actually don't have true life. You have darkness. You have death. And so, City Light, you, you might be running really hard at being a good person and doing all the right things. You might be in the room and say, hey, I'm at City Light Church every single Sunday morning. I'm tithing 10% of my income. I go to City Group every week. I make sure I'm on serving teams. I read my Bible every single day, and I pray and still be wandering around in darkness. You can do all the right religious and moral things you want and still be running as far away from God as possible because if you're in the dark, you can't see where you're going. And so the person who chooses to follow the moral law of God as hard as they can without Jesus are no closer to him than the person who makes it their ambition to break every law in the book because apart from Jesus, the light of life, you can't see God. Apart from Jesus, you can't get close to God. And so the good news is, is as we approach the light, what he does, he exposes us for who we really are. He exposes our heart and shows that it's broken, right? Everyone who looks out in the world, they know there's something wrong with it. And if you're honest, when you look in the mirror, you see the same thing. And he's showing us that we're broken people. And and what he promises is that if you confess with your mouth, those things. Confess the fact that I am a sinful, broken person in desperate need of a Savior, and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ did die on the cross for your sins and raised from the grave, you will be saved. You will pass from darkness to light. You will pass from death to life. That's the good news that we see in the Bible. And and listen to me, Paul says it this way in, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He says, he has delivered to us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in who we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus takes us in our dark and desperate state and gives us life through his light. And the the cool thing about that is that the good news doesn't actually stop at salvation. At the point of turning to Jesus and becoming a Christian, it doesn't actually stop there. The good news is something that we continually need It's something that daily we need. We continually need the light of life to shine on our hearts on a continuum because nothing is hidden from God. So there's no secrets either, by the way. And so if you're sitting in the room with a spiritual arrogance to you, essentially saying, hey, I'm, I'm fine. I don't really, I'm good. I don't need to move closer or move further. I don't need to grow. I want to just challenge you for one second. Let's, let's take your thoughts for the last 48 hours and put them on the screen. If I did that, would you still be even in the room? I don't think you would. If I, if I took what you have thought for the last 48 hours and put it on the screen, that would be shining a light too bright for you to handle, and you'd probably escape as quickly as possible. Or if you did stay in the room, I promise, I promise you that the confidence you had walking in would evaporate very quickly. You see, the light of God exposes our heart, and we, we don't always like that, but God wants to shine that light because the good news is the thing that restores us. 
when he shines the light, it's the thing that gives us life, those secrets, those compartments that you try to compartmentalize your life into and say that I'm fine are the places that God wants to reach into and say, hey, I can restore you to newness of life. A friend of mine put it this way. He said, when you first come to faith, what happens is you step into the light and God exposes you to who you really are. And then you fall to the ground in a mournful position because, oh my goodness, my sin before a holy God, I can see it so clearly. And then Jesus reaches down and says, hey, my grace is sufficient for you and pulls you back up. But then he says the Christian life doesn't stop there. You take the next step toward the light even further, and you see yourself again for who you really are before a holy God, and you mourn again, and then Jesus extends his grace again, and then grace, and then grace, and then grace, and then you take another step, and another step, and another place of grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus wants to give you an abundance of life, and it's only by stepping into his light. He doesn't want to give you a twinkling or a glimmer, but he wants to shine it bright. He wants to shine it bright. And so my second point, as he is the light that gives life, life is given and sustained by that light. And so that's the what? Jesus is the light. Now I want to take a moment to invite up a friend of mine to share with you his story of being a refugee. Now, I want to preface this with that this is not a Christian testimony necessarily. It's a, it's a story of his experience as a refugee. Uh, Mosin, uh, could you come up, brother? I would like to say thank you very much, everyone, for being here. And thank you very much for accepting me being part of this special event. Uh, my name is Mosin Hassan, and I've been in Lincoln for five months now. And I grew up in uh, Iraq, Sinjar, the north part of the country. I would like to start with a really normal life back in before war I I had my own business which was cell phone store yeah and I had my own uh, time for fun like playing soccer with my friends go go to swimming playing pools and just like many of you guys but after 2003 uh, war came to Sinjar and religious minorities began um, being persecuted. Uh, during my uh, work with the United States military back in Iraq, I, I witnessed um, a lot of horrible scenes, such, such as killing, beheading, shooting on the heads, and raping. Uh, and then in 2007, in 2007, the largest explosion of the country during the war actually happened in Sinjar. Um, it killed about 500 people, injured about 300 people, and uh, 200 people still missing to our present day. Um, after that, actually, what was happened, actually, there were four big trucks full of TNT exploded at the same time in a place where, like, only madhouse. So the place all destroyed. And at that time, after that huge explosion, we had no place to flee to. We had to stay in that dis- destroyed uh, place. And then in, on August 3rd, uh, in August 3rd, 2014, ISIS attacked Sinjar, actually more specifically, attacked southern Sinjar. And um, our friends and relatives, it was at night, our friends and relatives who lived on the, side, side, uh, on the south side actually called us and said that they were only giving two choices, either convert to Islam or die. 
so, so that we should flee as long as we have time because we were living on the other side of the mountain and we still had some time. They were coming to the other side. Um, on that day, actually about 400,000 people fled Sinjar. Some climbed mountains and others like me fled to Kurdistan area, which is a safe area. Uh, we suffered a lot on that day. Uh, cars and trucks were overloaded by people. Roads and streets were closed and crowded. Hundreds of, I'll say thousands of people had no choice but to walk for tens of miles to reach their safe destinations, which is a Kurdistan area. Uh, we lived in Kurdistan. I'll just say before that. Uh, many of those who, uh, fled, who climbed mountain actually died either from uh, hunger, thirst, uh, or fear, or uh, diseases, especially young children and elders. Uh, we lived in Kurdistan then for almost three years. Most people lived in camps, refugee camps, where they lacked the many, uh, many basic things in life, like gas, electricity, education, health care, uh, healthy food, and so on. Uh, then after three years, we went to Turkey, and from Turkey, we eventually got to this beautiful city of Lincoln. Yeah, I love this. I love this a lot. Now, what is the most difficult part for refugees here? I would say, from my perspective, uh, moving to the other side of the world is extremely difficult for many reasons, and I would not say mon uh, all of them, but I'll just few, uh, say a few of this. Um, and one of these uh, difficulties would be not knowing the language. Actually, you can't survive if you don't speak to people. How getting job, you know, and uh, for example, how going to gas station, fill up your car, and you know, so on. And other things, really difficult to be away from your uh, families and friends, where, which you grow up with them for like 20 or more years. And uh, learning new cultures would, uh, is also a really difficult because it's really, uh, I would say, completely different culture, so it's kind of hard. Um, luckily for me, I, I already knew English because I'm a graduate stu student from the Department of English Language. And, but for people like my wife, it's really difficult to learn the language. Okay. Now, it was so kind and helpful for me to have natives welcoming me at the airport at the moment I got to this land. Uh, they helped me, they showed me around, and eventually became my friends. They really, uh, that was really, really helpful. And we were looking for such things. And uh, the other point, I've, I heard this a lot. People um, asking me a lot about these questions. How can we help refugees? Uh, actually, helping them is not only by giving money. There are other ways to help refugees. By, for example, becoming, uh, becoming uh, welcoming neighbors, becoming friends, actually talking to them, showing them around directions and roads, how to get to some place. And most importantly for me, as I told you, teaching them the language. And we have really good example of that. Colleen, I don't know if she is here or she downstairs. She would always go to refugee uh, 
people to the refugees and she will talk to them and they're really progressing very fast. People don't really learn uh, English by taking class. If you don't talk to people, it's probably hard to learn. Uh, I've said a lot about Iraq because I know a, a lot of details in, about Iraq and I've lived in Iraq. Actually, there are other parts of the world that are suffering the same thing. There are many countries like Sudan, South Sudan, Burma, and uh, Congo, and Central African Republics, and many other places. Uh, what I'm saying finally is these beautiful lands of ours should be protected. We all should help each other in, when we need. This is from my perspective. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Mosin, for sharing that. Um, wow. So, today, uh, we have labeled Refugee Sunday. I don't know if you know that or not, but what I want to do first off before I continue is to disarm any preconceived thoughts or notions about what that really means. So, I want to share with you, Austin and I, when we first had a desire and entered into the church planning experience, we prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, who will you have us go on mission for? Like, who will you have us take the good news of the gospel to? And we, we strongly believe that that initial mission and the mission today would be to the college student and to the community. The college student, because there's 30,000 of them in our city and about 1,000 of them in, in Christian ministries or churches, and then the community, which is the area around our building here. Uh, statistically speaking, there's around 70,000 residents around this area within a five-minute drive. And it's the most de- densely and diverse populated area of our city. And among that diversity, a good portion of our 20,000 refugees live within this area. And so when we, when we look at that particular vision, our city being the diverse place that it is, and really it's a hub for many different refugee groups, those are the people that we're crying out to God for. I mean, just look at this. For instance, I want to define what a refugee is in the first place. A refugee is a person who is, had the, is forced to leave their country in order to escape war or persecution, Now, these are people who are pushed out of their homes for reasons that are outside of their control. There's nothing they can do about it. And one of the primary reasons they're pushed out is for persecution's sake, meaning they're being pushed out because of what they believe. I want to give you a stat. 45% of refugees that come into the U.S. would ascribe to the Christian faith. So when we look at this, what this means is that these people coming over, a lot of them are our brothers and sisters, And they're also our neighbors as we see our community around us. And I'm important, I think it's important for me to say this again because we've said it many, many times, but this is is still true. This is not a political thing. This is not primarily a political thing that for us to long for and be concerned for refugees is actually a gospel issue. When Jesus sees his family being persecuted and pushed out of his homes, their homes, he cares. He loves them. When he sees those who are far off from him pushed out of their homes, he cares. So this is not a political agenda. This is a gospel agenda. 
He's placed those people, our family in Christ, and those who are far off from God right here in our neighborhood. In Acts 17, here's how uh, Luke puts it in Acts 17 in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You see, God is using a tragedy of forced displacement for the triumph of salvation. That's what he's doing here. And as we've already discussed, he's the light of life. And so you have to ask the question, where is that light directed? And so in our passage, my third point is this, where? And it says the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, when you see that word world, it's the word cosmos in the Greek. The reason why I say that is because there's two different ways by which that word is used. The first is all of created existence. So the stars, the sun, the moon, the earth, the people in the earth, the created things on the earth, all of those things. And then the second is all people groups. So when we look at the text and Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am the light of all people groups. Now saying this again in our story ticked off the individuals that were listening to him. Reason being is because up until Jesus came and had his human birth, God's primary, his, his, his primary posture, his preferential love and focus was for a specific people, the Jewish people. But I think the ones that are in our story here have forgotten something. I think they've forgotten why Jesus pursued them, why God pursued them with preferential love. They forgot their mission that God was trying to show them. And I'll show you where it is. It's in Genesis 12, 2, when God initially calls the Jewish people through their founder, Abram. In Genesis 12, verse 2, here's what it says. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Notice God said, so that. So when you open your Bible and you see the word so that, that is a purpose statement. It's saying, I'm doing this for this reason. And so when he's talking to them, he's saying, hey, I'm doing this so that you might be a blessing. And I think our friends here have not considered that. The Jews in his time considered themselves the moral elite. They were the good people, and, I, and they lost sight of the mission that God had them on in the first place. They had the privilege of God revealing himself to them. They had the privilege of experiencing God's preferential love toward them. They had the privilege of having God's word right before them, right in front of their faces. And one of the greatest privileges that they practiced of the moral elite in our story is the privilege of being disconnected from the reality of others' suffering. The suffering being far off from God, the suffering of being disenfranchised by societies or countries, the suffering of not knowing the love of God that is offered to them. You see, the light of life, the gospel that we see in the scriptures is not just meant for good people or the people who say the right things or a certain people group. It's for everyone. So if you're a person in the room from Iowa... It's for you. If you're a person from Chicago, it's for you. If you're from this far off land called McCook, Nebraska, 
The gospel's for you, okay? If you're from South America, Sudan, South Africa, Asia, China, India, wherever in the world you might be from, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. The good news that the Son of God did not come into the world to condemn it, but to actually offer himself up as a sacrifice based on the love of God the Father. So Jesus isn't just for certain people who vote, walk, talk, or think a certain way, or look a certain way. Jesus is for the nations. In fact, it was prophesied about him about 740 years before his human birth here. In Isaiah 49, 6, here's what it says, referring to Jesus. I will make you, Jesus, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It was prophesied 740 years before he even came. My third point is where? It's the world. He's the light of the world. And then my final point, where we really land the plane, my final point is how. And how is us? If you look in the second part of our verse here, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, so what I didn't mention earlier was kind of the bigger context or the greater context of what's going on. So when Jesus stands up in the temple and starts to proclaim, I am the light of the world, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the beginning of that feast, there was this giant party going on. I mean, it was huge. Like everybody was around. And when it got dark outside, they would light these huge torches. I'm talking it had 65 liters of oil in it. Like, that's how big the torches were. There were four of them. And then they would take men of good standing, and they would light their own smaller torches, and they would dance near the torches. And the lights that would illuminate from there would shine throughout the entire temple, so God's people, but then also beyond that throughout all of Jerusalem. You see, they were praising God for his deliverance and and carrying them out of the wilderness by his precious light. And so we've been given that precious light and deliverance as well today. And so he's saying, hey, do you have a torch? Do you, do you, will you shine my light now? Here, here's what Matthew 5 says about you and about me. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, city light, cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to, to the, all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, there's this purpose statement, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives us the application right there in the text. It's not just the idea that he's the pre-existing God of the universe, that he's the light to the entire world, but we actually have a part to play in it. That we possess that very light that he's talking about. We ourselves, in and of ourselves, are not the light, but we've been given the light of Jesus. The, the, the one source of life that can be given to all of humanity has been given to you and to me. And notice even in our text, it doesn't say, I give the light to those who are mature, growing Christians. It doesn't say, I give the light to the person who has it all together. No, he doesn't allow us to shrink back from that. He says, if you follow me, you have my light. And so that means if you're a Christian in the room, that's every single one of you. That our beautiful God would allow us to shine his beautiful light. And so we get his light, but then we get to reflect his light. 
That's a, a beautiful opportunity for us. We have an opportunity to take our little light and shine it within our city. You see, when Christianity started about 2,000 years ago, it was average, normal, well, somewhat normal, human beings within the context of daily life shining their light. And you know how they turned what was arguably the greatest kingdom to ever rule the earth. They turned it on its head within a couple of years. They were normal Joes taking their little light and shining it into one of their co-workers' lives, one of their classmates' lives, one of their neighbors' lives. One at a time, one by one, they would shine that light to individuals, and the entire Roman Empire was flipped on its head within just a couple hundred years. See, like we have that same opportunity today. We have several tribes, tongues, and nations right here in our city, and they're our neighbors, and God wants to take his gracious opportunity and allow us to shine his light within our neighborhoods. The Father would allow his children to be a part of his work and being a light to the nations. So we have college students, we have poor people, we have widows, we have orphans, we have strangers, we have those who are far off from God, those who are close to God that are all right around us all the time. And one of the specific people groups that we want to make sure we take that light to are refugees. Um, I want to share a quick story about a friend of mine. His name is Bwai. Uh, I met Bwai in college, but he first came to the States as a refugee. He's from Sudan. So in Sudan, there was war and civil war going on. And so he was what they call a lost boy of Sudan, meaning he had to run from his home And he got the opportunity to become a refugee, so he took it. And when he took it, he actually took it not knowing his age or when he was even born, for that matter, and barely his own name. (laughs) And so he arrived here when he was around 13 or 14 years old and lived with a family in Omaha who knew Jesus. That family shared Jesus with Bwai, and my friend Bwai comes to know Jesus goes to college at Wayne State College, the Harvard of the Midwest, apparently. Um, And when he goes there, he meets a group of Christian college students where they welcome him into the family, not because of where he's from, but because who he belongs to. And as Boy gets welcomed into that community, he realizes that, oh, there's more of a mission for me than just keeping the light to myself, but I have to shine it to other people too. I get to do that. And so he did. He actually had a Bible study for other lost boys of Sudan and led many of them to the Lord. Praise God. And then when my friend Boy graduated, he goes to Texas with a construction degree. And in that degree, he, he wanted to take that back to Sudan so he can bring clean water to his village and bring the light of Jesus to them as well. And so he gets to Texas, he finds a job, praise God for that, and gets plugged into a church because he knows where to plug into a family of light. And they announced, one of the first Sundays he was there, they announced, hey, we're going to go to Sudan in a month. Just so happened. Hmm. And where we're going in Sudan is a village that's actually right next to Bwai's home. And so the light of the world was given to Bwai when he was 14 right here by average normal people who love Jesus and serve Jesus. And then he got to take that to his family. Boy, I got to take that to his family. So, so the reason why I want to share that story is because you have no idea what kind of story Jesus wants to write for somebody. He wants to change an entire generation of people, and he wants to take the gospel to the nations. He wants to rewrite people's stories. And Boy's story would not take place 
had it not been for a normal Christian person like you or I taking the light that we have and sharing it with him. Currently, there's 60, currently 60% of people who would not profess Christianity within the North America would say they don't even know a Christian. We have a huge opportunity to take the world and flip it upside down. And honestly, I, I love what Mohsen said. He said, one of the best things you can do is be their friend. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Just to enter into somebody's life and shine the brightest light ever known to man right in their life with the love of Jesus. So I want to invite you, City Light, to let your light shine and let it shine in our city and into the ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray.